Well, good morning in town. You may be seated. We have been in a series just introduced to us last week by Jimmy in which we are looking at the idea of delight, desire, joy, encouragement, beauty, all of the good things in this world. And the the key part from last week's sermon and and really the, the whole of this series is this, that you were made for those things. You were created for those things. Those are God centered values. We don't normally think about desire as a God-centered value, but it is. Delight, joy. We were made for these things. There's a myth in Christianity that we, to become holy, to grow closer to God, that we somehow must suppress all of our desires to somehow leave room for Jesus. Believe it or not, that's actually a very Buddhist idea, not a Christian idea. Because what Scripture tells us is that our goal is to not have suppressed desires, but it's to see God through Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, through His Word and His worship and the community of His people to see our desires changed, reordered, if you will, shaped by Jesus. So we're looking at the Psalms, and we are looking at just how much God actually wants us to have right but real desires. This week we're going to be looking at Psalm 84, and one of the things that we we wanted to do, not every week because we didn't want it to kind of seem trendy or out of place, but the Psalms are God's people's songbook and poetry. They were the statements of God's people, and they were used, and we'll talk about this this morning, in many different walks of their life, not only in kind of worship proper, the way we're in worship right now. And because of that, they weren't only necessarily for one person. And so we're used to Psalms and and really large portions of Scripture being read by a single voice and sometimes a little bit of call and response between us, especially in our call to worship. But over the next few weeks, one of the things we're also going to be participating in through listening is hearing how some of the songs shift voice. And so today, both Tom and Megan are going to come and read Psalm 84 to us. Good morning. Today's scripture reading is from Psalm 84. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars. O Lord of hosts, my King and my God, blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength, 
Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Holy God, may these words be true. And may you help us to understand what they might mean for us today here in this place, in Atlanta, in our own lives, that we might also long for you, long for that day in your courts. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, again, good morning. I hope you're having a good day. Um, For those of you who might have grown up or uh, been in church during a very specific time in the 90s in the modern worship music era, I am not sorry and do not apologize at all for the song that is now going to be stuck in your head for the entirety of this sermon. That's where I've been all week. Okay, so if not, it's okay, not a big deal. Actually, as much as I make that joke, it's a great reminder that um, God uses worship to shape us, and he uses worship to shape us and get scripture into us. And that's one of the reasons why we sing so many psalms. Sometimes you don't even realize that we're singing a psalm or a passage from Isaiah or a passage from the New Testament, Um, but singing is one of those things that gets language into our brains, isn't it? Most of you cannot remember um, a number of different passages to save your life, but I promise you, if you heard the right beat and if you heard the right music, depending on what type of music it was, you could bring pages upon pages of lyrics out of your brain. I promise you this. I have watched some of you in karaoke. I know this. So... With that, we're going to look at Psalm 84 this morning. And what I want to do this morning with Psalm 84, as I said at the beginning, we kind of have this this rubric, right, that we have desires. We delight in things. We have joy. And so really the question, if, if we could define two sides of the ditch for a moment, is that we recognize that our desires are the things we delight in are often disordered. They're often broken. They often um, are in need of transformation by Jesus on one side, but that the overcorrect on the other side that we already mentioned is that we can often just try to repress delight and desire and joy entirely. As if to say somehow that if we can exchange the things we like for the things we think God likes, then that's the definition of the Christian life. Actually, that's a really good definition of the Christian life, exchanging what we like for the things God likes. The problem is, is we actually are not nearly as clear 
as we think we are on the things God actually likes. And so one of the things the Psalms do is the Psalms help rewire us and shape us to think rightly about God's own desires and how those connect with our own. So we're going to be looking both at disordered desires and denied desires. But first of all, let's look at a little bit of context. What is this psalm actually saying? I had a seminary professor who did not wear a bow tie who always said context is king. Um, actually, he did wear a bow tie sometimes, so that doesn't work. Um, he always said context is king. And, and what he meant by that is that um, the context of Scripture is always incredibly important. Now, on the one hand, we never want to believe that Scripture is not Simplistic is the wrong word, but accessible. It is, in fact, one of the most accessible books of all time. If you think about how the gospel has been translated into so many different languages and so many different cultures in the world and how it's flowed into those cultures and people from all walks of life and all places of literacy, all ages, all ethnicities have been able to understand and bring great um, insight into what God is saying to his whole global people. We never want to say that somehow you have to have a seminary degree or a PhD or a, an archaeology degree to somehow drum up the one little silver key that's going to unlock the whole passage for you. At the same time, these were real words written to and by real people. And the context matters. And in this passage in particular, the context really makes some elements shine. The context of Psalm 84 is that it is a psalm of pilgrimage. You see, there's lots of continuity between the Old Testament people of God, who we call the, the ancient Israelites, and today, the church, people who follow Jesus. There's a lot of continuity, right? We read the Old Testament and the New Testament. We longed, we, we watched with them longing for the Messiah. We celebrate a Jewish man who was also God, who is risen and coming again as our Savior. At the same time, there are some key differences, right? Because of the work of Jesus, we don't have sacrifices anymore. I did not have to go to school to become a butcher as well as to become a preacher. Praise God. Um, that would be bad. You know, we, we, we don't have um, a number of the same connections to the law of the Old Testament as we would if we grew up in Old Testament Israel. One of the things we might not think a lot about is the difference in geography. And I don't just mean the, the, the promised land of Israel in the Middle East as opposed to North America here. I mean just local geography. You and I, at least in this country, we are in a country where you can wake up and drive and go to church. And you actually have a lot of different choices. There's lots of places, obviously, in this world where that's not the case due to persecution, but also just distance. There are different places where people will travel a long ways away to get to church. I have a good friend who is a teacher of rural pastors in Kenya, and he often will say that he'll, he'll do these uh, seminars to help train pastors, and he'll see pastors who have walked for four days to come to his seminar um, because this, the distance between churches is so great. 
In the Old Testament, while there was the beginnings of a synagogue and elder tradition where people would be able to share God's word with one another, there were also very important festivals and ceremonies and dates where worship of God's people altogether had to happen in a very specific spot. And by the time these psalms are written, that spot is either the final resting place of the tabernacle or the temple itself. It's in one spot. We're in Jerusalem here. We are having to all gather. So you can imagine what it would be like if you had to slash got to have a rhythm of your life that said, yes, there's going to be worship in lots of other places in your life. There is Sabbath. There is, um, you know, drinking of, of God's word. But what if six, seven, eight, ten times a year, you actually had to physically make, make, make a trip, a cost to go and get to worship God with all of the people of God. This is what worship was like in ancient Israel. And so, like many, many people who did not live in Jerusalem, a number of times a year, you would saddle up your animal, gather your clan together. You weren't going to make this journey alone. You'd go with a bunch of other people, and you would road trip this thing for two, three, four days maybe, traveling to Jerusalem to go worship God. And then you would do the same thing all the way home. Now, what I have just described for some of you might be hell, and we can talk about that a little bit more in a second. But think about this. Think about, have you ever been in a situation in your own life where the cliche of the journey, not the destination, kind of makes me a little sick, but, but there is an element where the traveling to get to the spot was so much fun and so packed with community and packed with anticipation and packed with joy and packed with preparation that by the time you actually got to the thing, like you had already been on the vacation or the mission trip or the whatever for a number of days already. It didn't feel like the travel was a slog. Have you ever had that? Closest thing I had was a mission trip that I took one time to Nicaragua. And um, even though Nicaragua is uh, in uh, South Central America, it's actually only a three hours south from Miami, Florida. And so the trip seems to be shorter than you think, but sitting in airports for a long time is not incredibly fun. But in this specific trip, when I got to go with a bunch of my college friends, um, we were all so excited about Jesus, and we were so excited. Most of us, this was our first uh, mission trip. Um, a couple of the, the members of our eight-person group had uh, taken Spanish in college, and they were very, very excited to get to worship with Spanish-speaking believers. They, um, there, there was just a sense of anticipation, so much so that one of my friends almost got tackled in the airport because she was on her cell phone telling her mom how excited she was about the trip. And she walked right through the no cell phone zone. And the security guard begins to call after her and then walk after her and then run after her. And thankfully, another one of my friends literally slaps the phone out of her hand before the security guard could tackle 
this five foot three um, wonderful college lady. Um, yeah, it was, it was bad. Um, but, but I say all that to say this. Could you imagine a time in which getting to go worship Jesus was not the way it is for some of us or maybe all of us. It's not the wake up after a packed Saturday and you kind of drag yourself to church, even if you're excited to go, and then you go and it's a little hectic and then there is a burden of what am I going to do with the rest of my day that somehow still has Sabbath but also I'm preparing for Monday and all the things. What if getting to prepare for worship was so packed with anticipation and excitement and joy and then getting to do it and then getting days of getting to reflect upon it. This is what it looked like in the Old Testament. And so what you have here in Psalm 84, that long explanation is a journal of joy. You have an expression of excitement and wonder of somebody who has been in worship before, maybe many times, but who cannot wait to go back. And so they are sharing this with all of the people around them. You can imagine being a little kid, basically getting to go on a three-day road trip with all of your friends and your family, getting to sit on the knees of aunts and uncles and neighbors and hear all the stories of God's faithfulness to hear how awesome God is, to learn new songs, to play games, to eat great food, and to know that the Super Bowl awaits you, that something incredible awaits you. Even more so because the Israelites used psalms themselves to help shape their worship, what you have here is almost a, an inception level of singing because you have someone writing about anticipating worshiping God who then that passage will get what will permeate throughout other people and they will use it also singing it to express their own anticipation and longing of worshiping God before they ever even get to worship. Psalm 84 is this psalm of movement of excitement of delight and desire. So how do we keep from falling into either one of the ditches? If we have disordered desires and denied desires on each side of us, and if those are so easy for us to fall into, how can we be shaped by this pilgrim's experience? Let's look at disordered desires first. When I say disordered desires, I actually mean a couple of different things. Scripture tells us all of us are broken. And, and we use that word broken, and sometimes it means great things, and sometimes it casts a little bit of obscurity on what the Bible says. The obscurity is that we're not just broken. We're like in rebellion. We are sinners. I tell some people sometimes, I, I tell my students this actually a lot, that um, we often think about the Lord of the Rings. Some of you might be watching Amazon's prequel. Um, and we think about this battle between good and evil. So you've got the great people on one side and you've got the evil 
on the other. And I think sometimes we imagine that we're these little hobbits in the middle, just sort of sitting there. And that's not the biblical reality. The biblical reality is that we're orcs. We're a part of the bad guys. We're broken. At the same time, I actually also love talking about brokenness because one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture is in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah calls out the people of Israel and he says, um, in the voice of the Lord, I have two things against my people, that my people have gone from um, gone to try to find water at different wells than the well that I have for them, says the Lord. But also, even if they did have my well, their cisterns, their jars are broken. They can't hold it. And I often think about sin in that way as well, that so often we're, we're not as evil as we can be. That isn't what sin and rebellion and corruption are. But we are broken. We are twisted. There is an element to which even when we try to do good things, and there are lots of good people who have no clue who Jesus is in this world to an extent, and yet all of those good things are tainted. And I think this sense of disordered desire catches that, that we all need our desires reshaped by Jesus, not only the stereotypical bad things that we don't want to do anymore, but even our desires for good things so easily become our desire for ultimate things. We need Jesus to shape us. This passage does this, and it does it um, in a sense of bringing us outside of ourselves. Worship and the worship with God's people is a mechanism that takes us out of ourselves, out of our day-to-day -day life. It takes us out of the stresses of family. It takes us out of the stresses of work. It takes us out of the loneliness that we sometimes experience in our day-to-day -day life or the trauma or the drama or the stress that we have. And at least what it should be is to place us in an environment of love and not a hold hands, sing kumbaya love, a real, honest, grace-filled love where a bunch of broken people who have no reason to be friends together get to be a family together because Jesus is changing all of their hearts. A place where you do not have to perform, a place where you do not have to impress, a place where healing can occur. There's a sense in which worship does this week in and week out for us. And because of this, it is right that the writer of this psalm, even as he is traveling to worship on his way in medias res, on the way, he is nonetheless still longing for this place of wholeness. The passage acknowledges the reality of how hard life can be. In verse 6, we see the psalmist describing in sort of this second voice, the voice that, that Megan took, um, where he sort of draws back and takes this objective view of pilgrims as a whole. I'll actually start in verse 5. Blessed are those whose strength is in you and whose heart are the highways to Zion as they go through the valley of Baca. 
They make it a place of spring. The early rain covers it with pools. Many scholars believe there is actually an area or was at this time on one of the well-worn pilgrimages to Jerusalem that had this name, the Valley of Baca. Baca is a word in Hebrew that referred to a specific kind of tree, a pretty sad-looking tree that nonetheless survived in really, really difficult circumstances. So think like cactus or any other type of bush that you can't stand and know that it's everywhere. Um, But Hebrew also does a really fun grammatical thing, and that's that um, Hebrew has a lot more homophones than what we have. So homophone, the idea of two words that mean different things but sound just alike, Hebrew is filled with them. And a lot of their naming conventions of things would take and kind of insert a sly little extra nod to that reality. Here, the Valley of Baca does refer likely to a very specific spot that is filled with these trees. And yet also, Baca sounds very, very similar to the Hebrew expression of sorrow or of weeping. And so there is this sense that this is very, very similar to how the psalmist in Psalm 23 talks about the valley of the shadow of death. There's this acknowledgement that life is not the way it's supposed to be. And we kind of come out of that, even for this short amount of time, in the midst of worship. I don't know whether that is your actual reality or mine. We'll talk about that some more, but... That is what is intended to be. Even more so, perhaps the most famous verse in all of this psalm, verse 10, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Think about all the different parallels that are happening in this verse. This idea of time. I would rather spend one day with God than a thousand days somewhere else. How about value? I would rather work as a gatekeeper, a menial position, literally as the person who is standing outside the doors and who maybe only hears through the crack in the door and lets everybody else in. And yet somehow that is more valuable and more desirable and more satisfying than someone who dwells in the tents of the wicked. And to kind of unpack that a little bit further, remember that a number of peoples back in this day were, and and some still are, nomadic peoples and traveled through the desert. And if you were the type of person who had tents, multiple tents, you traveled as a caravan and you didn't just sleep out under the stars, but you actually could set up opulence wherever you were, then you had what everyone wanted. You had the riches of this world. You had the ability to travel. You had freedom. You had delight and desire. And the psalmist is saying all of those things pale in comparison. There's even just a little interesting hint of how how solid being in a house is as opposed to those who roam. 
There's a sense in which coming out of ourselves to worship is the thing that we're called to long for. C.S. Lewis brought this into a modern sense in his book, Mere Christianity. He says in a famous quote, if I find in myself a desire in which no experience in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was actually made for another world. I think a lot of people today feel this feel this hollowness in our world. The disordered desires we feel fail to satisfy. One famous philosopher, a man named Charles Taylor, who is in his late 90s now, but has written about my generation and how we have kind of risen up to fill the earth, has noted that it is ironic, incredibly ironic, that the generation that perhaps most accepts secular culture and a secular understanding of things, um, a full leadership of one's own life without having to acknowledge any other out, you know, outstanding powers other than that which we can see and understand and test. It is ironic that they experience mental and emotional anguish more than any other generation in history as if our very souls are fighting against the way in which we have closed the world around us. What's this mean for you? What's this mean for me? I think we need to take some time and unpack why church is not as awesome as it sounds in the Psalms. As a pastor, I do that. I, I, I think about that. I need to do it more. And I don't want to give us the impression, as Jimmy used last week, of, um, oh, we're just big head people and we need to just push all that down and become big heart people and suddenly that will be okay. But I want to long for Jesus like this. I've been really moved this week by uh, a prayer, a very short prayer by um, a woman centuries and centuries ago named Teresa of Avila. Um, she said this, I do not love God. She said, I do not want to love God. But I want to, want to love God. There's this longing for the beauty that's expressed here that goes beyond emotion and goes beyond intellect to this existential piece of us that says even if we don't actually feel that desire or can even express it or even feel like we have the strength to act upon it. I mean, sometimes, you know, Luke said this already, the number of times that I simply pray, Holy Spirit, I have no clue what to pray. Pray for me. And I mean that not just that the Holy Spirit would, would pray for me and bless me, but that actually the Holy Spirit might... Pray, as Scripture says, with groanings that I cannot understand to be able to express what's in my heart and a longing for God. So disordered desires. What does it mean to see all of our desires, all the things that we love, and to see them pale in their satisfaction as compared to Jesus? But there's a second thing too, right? 
denied desires. To be honest with you, for many of us who have grown up in the church or been a Christian for a very long time, this is probably the ditch that the steering is off on our car enough that we're going to swerve this way more than that way. That sense of believing the things I enjoy can't be the things that God enjoys. So I need to push those away and I need to figure out what God enjoys. It can be very easy to use passages like this, Psalm 84, to support that kind of mentality. I mean, didn't we just say all of our desires pale in comparison with worship? They pale in comparison with the joy of God and being with his people. Yes. And at the same time, in practice, I'm not that cool. In practice, church, week in and week out, is not always easy. And it is not always satisfying. A view that that could be supported by this passage, if you twist it, is to say that all the spiritual things have meaning and none of the earthly things do. Growing up as a young Christian, the way that ended up playing itself out for me is that I always had a prioritization chart in my mind. And it meant that no matter how much I liked doing stuff, even good stuff, even great stuff, I could always be reading my Bible. I could always be praying. And it felt like nothing I ever did I could enjoy because I should be doing this other stuff over here. How it played itself out in church was even more notorious in some ways. Because if, if church had to embody this idea that worship is better than all of the things of this world, you can understand how easily that's a recipe for church having to be awesome and flashy and satisfying and giving you all the things and meeting all of your needs. And I promise you on this side of that now, that is a recipe for absolute burnout of all of us. There's this sense in which, no, Jesus is not extreme. And we don't have, you know, the, 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 the greatest or the best or this or that. What I love about Psalm 84 is that Psalm 84 acknowledges, and again, not to get into a cliche of journey versus destination, but Psalm 84 acknowledges the worth of the in-between time, the great worth of the in-between time. While this psalm is indeed talking about a wonderful experience with God in worship among his people, The reality is all of the praise of God in this passage is happening on the road, in the mundane, in the normal. Yes, exciting. Yes, that anticipation of road trip, but also road trip. Having to stop for the bathroom a lot, having to walk the dog a lot, having to find food, having to change the flat tire This passage 
is able to say that the in-between time declares the Lord and worship declares the Lord and the reflection declares the Lord. Indeed, all of our life is supposed to be this rhythm that while the focus in worship can rightly take us out of our normal lives and the focus of worship can rightly help orient our desire out of its disordered self and into Christ. At the same time, worship also affirms the journey. Not everything in the journey. All the verses that I just quoted you are true, but listen back again to that same Valley of Baca verse. As they go through the Valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength, each one appearing before God in Zion. Verse 5, blessed are those whose strength is in you, God, in whose hearts are the highways to Zion, the highways to Jerusalem, the highways to the presence of God. The reality is this, that while, yes, worship can help us reorder what we want and what we like, God actually uses our day-to-day life as the very place where all of that plays itself out. This is why we're not all monastics. This is why we don't just sit in church all the time. I mean, if, if that were true, if it really was always better to be praying and reading my Bible than eating a steak, then we all need to be aesthetics. We all need to sell everything we have, including this building, and move out into the desert like a couple of people did in the second century and eat almost nothing and wither away and die because we wanted to be closer to God. To be honest with you, some of the desert fathers from the second and third centuries, while they came up with incredible um, revelations and prayers and hymns and songs, a number of them, when other disciples would find them in their hermitages in the desert and say, oh, I want to be like you. I want to do what you do. It's reported many of the Desert Fathers would say, no, we don't need any more of us out here. We need you in your life. We need you in your place of work. We need you with your family. I love the fact that the very people going through the pilgrimage they make it a place of springs, their presence, as well as eliciting and highlighting the blessing of God, the early rain covering this place of sorrow with pools. Now, does that mean that you have to um, just have a smile on your face all the time? No, it doesn't. But I promise you, people are watching. I love the church. I became a pastor in part because as a kid, I fell in love with the rhythms of this place and being among God's people. And at the same time, one of the greatest crimes, honestly, of God's people is that we can be in this building so much. We could only be with each other so much that we're not doing life among everyone else. It's a great tension in scripture, isn't it? The world's going to hate you, but also they might love you because of the blessing you bring. They're going to hate you because they hate me. But Paul literally says in Thessalonians, 
Live quietly, work with your hands, follow the Lord, do what is good, and you will give, you will literally shame the people around you because they will be blown away by what you do and who you are. And they, the people who don't know God, will thank God for you on the day he shows up. What does it mean for you to carry what you experience in this room into the rest of your life? And what does it look like for you to bring what you experience in the rest of your life into this room? What does it look like that we might be a blessing to everyone around us specifically because we are not satisfied with where we are. We don't live like we hate our job or we hate our family or we hate our neighbor or we hate our situation in life. We might grieve it. We might experience deep sorrow. We have laments for that. We join in worship doing that. But you're not going to do it alone. You're going to be someone who is not one of the so many in our society who goes through this whole life without friends, only dealing with their problems with their own money, numbing their pain away, and not having a funeral at all because there's no one to remember them. No, we're going to be a people who are different because we get shaped each and every week in worship. And ultimately, all of that, I'm about to come to the Lord's table in just a minute. It's a rhythm, back and forth. Worship, real life. Worship, rest of life. Worship, rest of life. Someday the rhythm ends. And I've said this before, but the way we see the rest of eternity actually is a great reflection of how we understand this entire psalm and, in fact, how we understand what God actually delights in. I want to end today's sermon giving you a picture of home. I don't know what that necessarily means for you. Some of us grew up, home just felt like, oh, it's great, it's homey, it's whatever but it wasn't a big deal. Others of you had horrifically traumatic experiences at home. You never want to go back. Others of you moved around so much that home is not a physical location at all. But that longing for something solid and final, where you're not tired anymore, you don't have to earn it anymore, you don't have to figure it out anymore. Some people would just picture that as bliss, as nothingness, as just an end. Not our God. This is Jeremiah chapter 31. At this time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel, and they shall be my people. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. When Israel sought for rest, the Lord appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. 
Again, I will build you and you shall be built, O virgin Israel. Again, you shall adorn yourself with tambourines and shall go forth in the dance of merrymakers. Again, you shall plant vineyards on the mountains of Samaria. The planters shall plant and shall enjoy their fruit. For there shall be a day when watchmen will call in the hill country of Ephraim, Arise, let us go up to Zion to the Lord our God. For thus says the Lord, sing aloud with gladness to Jacob. Raise shouts for the chief of the nations. Proclaim, give praise and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. Behold, I will bring them from the north country and will gather them from the farthest parts of the earth. Among them the blind and the lame, the pregnant woman, she who is in labor together, a great company, and they shall return here. With weeping they will come, and with pleas for mercy, I will lead them back. I will make them walk by brooks of water in a straight path in which they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the coastlands far away. He who scattered Israel will gather him and will keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. The Lord has ransomed Jacob and redeemed him from hands too strong for him. They shall come and sing aloud on the heights of Zion. They shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, the oil, the young of the flock, the herd. Their life shall be a watered garden, and they shall languish no more. Then shall the young woman rejoice in the dance, and the young man and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy, I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. I will feast the soul of the priests with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness. Let's pray. Holy God, go for that day. Oh, for that day.